Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cine fans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story, then you could become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Okay, welcome to CineLit. Today's episode, we are looking at two films in the rich career of David Lean. Lean is probably best known for his work doing lavish, meticulously staged films that ushered in the age of the Hollywood epic. Movies like Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957, Lawrence of Arabia from 1962, and his biggest box office hit, Dr. Zhivago from 1965. But we are casting our eyes back before the epics to post-war Britain and a brace of Charles Dickens adaptations that are among the most respected adaptations ever to have been put on film. We are looking at Great Expectations from 1947 and Oliver Twist from the year after 1948. So my name is Adam Marsh, I am the host of Cinelit, and I am joined today by my co-host Rebecca Taylor. How are you, Rebecca? I'm good, thanks. Hi, everyone. And as ever, we are joined by our resident Cinelit expert, Daryl Buxton. Hello, folks. Cool. So yeah, so, so David Lean, should we, should we, I guess we'll tackle this in chronological order, because there, there is a rhythm between those two Dickens adaptations that I think probably means you start with Great Expectations, even though it's one of Dickens' later books, um, as opposed to Oliver Twist. So yeah, so Great Expectations. So this is regarded um, as one of the best Dickens adaptations. Not the best adaptation of Great Expectations, but the best Dickens adaptations, full stop. It's very well regarded. It was voted, I think, at number seven or number five of the best British films of all time in 1999 when the BFI did their uh, best British, top 100 British films of all time. It was number five. I think Oliver Swiss clocked in in the 40s. So, you know, both of these are relatively well respected, or at least were respected in 1999. The world has changed a lot since then, which I think we'll we'll probably touch upon when we get to Oliver Twist in particular. Um, But, yeah, this one's one's like a a number five, Great Expectations. So it's very highly regarded. It was multiple Oscar nominated when it came out. Yeah, what do we think about it? (laughs) Becky, what was your take Um, on it? Because you're not a fan. Of Great Expectations. Of either, I think, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I d- yeah, I didn't like Oliver Twist at, at all, but we'll get onto that later. But yeah, Great Expectations. So I'd seen clips of it, like 
when it's been on the TV and things. Uh, but I just generally found the adaptation quite dull. And I don't know if that's because I'm watching it as a modern viewer and I'm thinking of other adaptations and things. But it just it was just a bit too slow paced for me. <laughs> It's an interesting one because it's, it's the fourth adaptation of Great Expectations, but only the second sound adaptation. And the first sound adaptation was a very, very low-budget movie that I don't think many people saw. That I think they're trying to be the definitive adaptation of Dickens. So they've been relatively faithful to the book. Uh, they, are, they are trying to nail it so that people who are aware of the book are watching the film and going, yep, that's exactly as I thought it was. Whereas I guess later adaptations have a bit more flexibility in messing around with characters, messing around with scenery and messing around with the look of these things. Some of those early ones, I think, are trying to nail the definitive film version so that other people can mess around with it later on. Yeah, having said that, I think there are there are sort of changes in both of these films that, that you know... Uh, to quote half man, half biscuit, uh, they irk the purists. Mm. But yeah, I, I think I think Dickens purists, although they might snipe at one or two little minor changes, I, I think even they would would say exactly what you've just said, Adam. Yeah, these if if we've got to watch these on film at all, these are the go-to movies. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those sort of like Victorian uh, authors are difficult to adapt into films because of the cadence of the way that the film the way the books are originally written mm. for serialization mean that they don't translate well into a three act structure movie they 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 have the this this weird cadence to them where every 10 minutes it reaches some sort of peak or crescendo yeah, yeah. or turning point yeah that's that's a, a weird thing about uh, adapting stuff from from this era and um, specifically about adapting Dickens. It remind, reminded me of, uh, of bizarrely, of Les Mis, Les Miserables, the film adaptation of that. And it, and it occurs to me when I was watching that, it's like why I was so crushingly bored during that movie. <laughs> and, and I suddenly realised that anybody who saw this on stage had a nice 20-minute break halfway through where they can go and knock back a couple of gins to get them through the rest of it and, and, and come back and enjoy it. <laughs> and I just realized, made me realise that, that those said actually are not designed to be movies. And they're saying in the same way as these serialised things, they're not designed to be, in the first place, they're not really designed to be novels. They're designed to be serialised stories. And they're not, mm. certainly not designed to be a three-act structure film. Um, so I think it does suffer from that piecemeal storytelling a little bit. I, I rather like the, the, the way it plays. I, I think if, if you go in in the, in the knowledge that it's based on an episodic structure, you, you can sort of go with that if you're sort of forewarned about that. I, I, I think it really works for, for the movie. And again, for, for, for modern viewers, if you're watching it on, on streaming or if you're watching it on Blu-ray or something, you know, it's nice to know that you will have a sort of natural break where you can, you can sort of pause every half hour, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and, and watch it. Again, as a purist myself, I hate to say that about 1940s film. Normally, if, 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 you, if you ask me that about Casablanca or something, I'd say, no, you've got to sit with rapt attention from start to finish you know with great expectations you sort of don't need to you know it's uh, it's 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 sort of very old-fashioned and very modern now given given that i think there is a very evident sort of episodic structure to the movie adaptation 
And since uh, Becky, you were saying you're, you're not a fan of this version, how how did that play for you? Not not just the sort of slowness of the film, but the fact that the story did seem to be sort of fragmented, and characters were disappearing and then coming back later on, almost as though they're in episode one and episode five sort of thing. You know, did did you find that a bit of a fault as well? Yeah, actually, it's funny that you say that, Daryl, because um, I watched it with my mum and I said to my mum, is Miss Havisham coming back at all? And my mum was like, yeah, she comes back later in the story. Because uh, the way it was, it had that, obviously, that section um, as the young Pip and then it jumps to the older Pip with um, John Mills and then he goes off to the city to become a gentleman. And um, I was like, well, what's happening? What's happened to that story there? It just seemed to jump over. And then obviously... That's always the case with these sort of stories. If you you see that in a film today, you know, you you, you sort of see kids in the opening scene or whatever, and then suddenly it's Tom Cruise, you know, and you're sort of thinking, well, who's who's he playing, you know? And uh, (laughs) you've jumped 20 years forward, and, and it does take you a few minutes to think... Oh yeah, that's that's the kid we've just been watching growing up. You know, it takes a bit of skill, I think, for filmmakers to actually make those sort of transitions. And then, of course, the the, the other problem that uh, filmmakers still to this day have with this type of story that grow, goes across the decades is um, when your characters then become older and they're played by the same actor, but they're having to put sort of makeup and things on, and uh, in this case, sort of Dickensian whiskers and things like that. So. Uh, I mean, what, what, one thing that occurred to me uh, re-watching these films was um, whenever you see a sort of parody of Dickens on TV or, or if people talk about things being Dickensian, I don't think they are Dickensian and I don't think they are parodying Dickens. I think what they're doing is look, they're looking at this template, they're, they're parodying David Lean's idea of Charles Dickens. I think I, I was saying this before before we started recording the podcast. It's like whenever I think of Dickens, I think urchins, and I think there's a, there's a real lack of urchins in Great Expectations. <laughs> I think that that lends is the least Dickin, Dickensian book of, yeah, uh, of yeah. all. Of they, them. they make up for that with Oliver. Oh yeah, yeah, they go full on. Yeah. And, and I think you know you, you you get the youngster at the, at the start of Great Expectations, so he's not what you'd call an urchin because he's too high class. Mm. But uh, but there's still the element. Of, of that about him, that, that uh, he's almost there as the sort of representation of, of that. But I think, um, I, think, I think when people think of Dickens, they think of, 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 of poverty and they think of uh, run-down slums and things like that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the image. And this book doesn't do with that. They're all... I mean, they have the, the, they have the relatively working class characters, but they are sidelined, and it's all about him becoming a gentleman and having yeah. money yeah. and having more money and having uh, and where's this money coming from? So yeah. it's like it's not really about what Dickens tended to write about. No. In a lot and of even his books. even the prisoner character Magwitch be- becomes a sort of well-to-do mm-hmm. gent over the course of the story. You know, um, even though things don't end well for him, but. Uh, Again, I, I think when, when people look at Dickens and think, oh, yeah, it's all about poverty, is there a tendency there for people to be thinking about David Lean's version of Oliver Twist and about the, the, uh, the, the 60s musical Oliver and, and, and sort of basing it all on, on that? Because, um, you know, other stories have been filmed as well, um, uh, Tale of Two Cities and things like that. And uh, 
I think there are only certain Dickens novels that, that, that sort of delve into that area and Great Expectations, as you say, is one that sort of goes into a, a, a different sort of area. It's looking at different things and looking at different class structures and so on. Yeah, but I think there are, yeah, I, don't, I haven't read all of Dickens' books, but, um, yeah, I think he always had some the two different classes together. Like, you think about David Copperfield and Bleak House, and think, they also show the upper classes as well. But, yeah, I think maybe with uh, Great Expectations, the the balance is, is more so on, on the upper classes. You know, you've got Pip, who is working class, but then he becomes a gentleman. So yeah, I think I think you definitely I think it owes more to kind of a Wuthering Heights kind of gothic melodrama, yeah, than than it does from what we traditionally think of as what Dickens did well. All that said, and I know this isn't David Lean specifically, but is there a better title than Great Expectations in in, in cinema or, or novels? It's such a great title that allows you to interpret in in a numerous number of ways you know what i mean it is it is and um even even in the story itself and in lean's movie itself you know it could mean all kinds of things at different times and Mm. we we do ultimately find out that there is a sort of specific meaning for it but it could apply to any character really yeah i think uh, you know there are so many interesting characters in this I think the, the Miss Havisham character at the core of it all is someone who almost sort of feels that she's failed in that respect and therefore wants to sort of project her wishes, her younger self's wishes, onto younger people as, as she sees them sort of growing up around her, you know. And uh, there is this sense of her trying to live vicariously. She's, she's almost... I mean, you, you mentioned the word gothic there, Adam, and that's something I really wanted to talk about in respect of both of these films, because she's almost a sort of vampiric type character in in a good way, in a positive way, sort of feeding off the the hopes and expectations of of the young charges that she sort of Mm -hmm. takes into her home, you know. And uh, And she can be killed by fire. Yes, she can. In the same way as vampires can. (laughs) She gets a great death scene. And in fact, um, there are connections with Hammer's Dracula movies because there's a great long table in in her her dining room, which is very, very similar to the one that you see in Hammer's Dracula, which Peter Cushing sort of runs along. And um, and there's there's even Peter Cushing in that scene when he destroys Christopher Lee's Dracula, leaps off that table and pulls down a huge pair of uh, curtains, very thick curtains. And that happens here in Great Expectations with a character. There's there's a hint that Miss Havisham may be sort of somehow taking over, or the idea of Miss Havisham, or or what she represents takes over females that, that live in that house and and uh, and to destroy that you have to pull the curtains down mm. so it's got that association with dracula we've also got uh, martita hunt and frida jackson in very prominent roles who came back 15 years later to appear in hammer's brides of dracula and i think audiences going in to see brides of dracula may well have remembered them both from from great expectations and i think certainly older members of the audience at Brides of Dracula would have made that connection and would have said, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the women from uh, Great Expectations. And I think that would have filtered through to their appreciation of what Hammer were doing with their 
uh, vampire movies. Also in terms of gothic, I think Lean, and certainly his production designers, um, were massively, massively influenced by um, the German expressionist cinema of, of the 20s. You, you can see there are, there are, there are sets in, in both movies, particularly in Oliver Twist, but mm. certainly in Great Expectations as well. There, there are sets that look very, very similar to the sort of stuff you'd see in, you'd see in early Robert Wiener or Fritz Lang movies. Um, Wiener's uh, Cabinet of Dr Caligari being the, the, the sort of key film of that expressionist period with its painted and angular sets, very, very famous. If you watch these two David Lean movies, you can see that influence here, you know. And um, I mean, the, the, the set designs are, on both of these movies... Is astonishing, really. I mean, yeah, evoking that gothic tradition, I guess, yeah. on film, and also, like you say, paying paying homage. I guess it wasn't called homage then, but it was like nicking what they were doing in the German expressionism. Yeah, but then in in turn had its own influence because I, I think Hammer Films were certainly watching David Lean. As I said, Billy Wilder when he made Sunset Boulevard was was copying this movie. Yeah you know, as much as he possibly could in so many ways, in set design, in terms of characters, in terms of character relationships. I think if you watch Great Expectations alongside Sunset Boulevard, which is a sort of contemporary set Hollywood movie, but with a very, very gothic sensibility and a Mm -hmm. real Miss Havisham character at the centre of it, you know, I think they'd make a great double bill. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And of course, I mean, this, this film starts with a great horror movie type scene you know the emergence of of magwitch in in the graveyard i mean the the opening of the film you've got this sort of edvard monk sort of sky which you also see in oliver twist as well uh, howling winds there's a creaking uh, gibbet isn't there a sort of gallows the creepy churchyard there's even a gnarled tree that I, I always seem to spot a, a, a face within within the bark of it. You know, it's like this, almost like there's this monstrous gnarled uh, face sticking out of it. And then even when Magwitch enters, enters, not just is it a surprise, not just is it a jump scare, but A, it's a jump scare. B, he's this great hulking bloke. C, he's clanking chains like like Marley's ghost. Mm. And you're thinking, what the hell is this? You know, uh, uh, I think even readers of, even people who knew the the novel well or the the part well would have been astonished by Lean's representation of that character. I mean, it is an interesting one because, like, Whenever we approach things like this from a modern modern age and, and, and reading, watching films, it's not always a given that people would have read the book for for, for new films because you know. But back then, this book was like seventy seventy years old by that point. Most people going to watch this film would have read the book. You know, um, it would it would have been mass produced. It was a huge smash hit on release. It was like continually being printed. So it was. It was in that position where, it, in some ways, it was about hitting the beats, but they hit the beats so beautifully that it's almost like recreating those original Crookshank drawings from from the magazines, you know, yeah, the original yeah. stories. Which again plays plays into Oliver Twist. Like yeah, very much so. Yeah, about. you know, uh, there was a very very sort of uh, purposeful attempt. Mm to copy uh, Crookshank in, in that movie in particular. Yeah. But, it, yeah, it, that's, that's, there, that's right there in Great Expectations, too, in the visual look of that. 
And I mean, it's what, funny you, you see some of that in you see some of that in like in, in bizarrely in Marvel movies and DC movies now, where you have particular sequences in those movies that are designed to represent what was happening in the comic books. Yeah, to look like to look, Jack Kirby or something. Yeah, to yeah, look yeah. like Jack per- Kirby, yeah. or, or even just look like the cover to that one comic book yeah, that yeah. everyone knows. And it's yeah. like, so they still do that kind of like evocative filmmaking and design. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of David Lean's influence, I think he obviously looked at, at the, 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 the Cruikshank uh, drawings and looked at German Expressionism and looked at the Universal horror movies that had been inspired by that. You can see a lot of Frankenstein in in this movie. But also, I think a, 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 an influence that's been less talked about is British cinema of the 1940s itself, because by the time that Great Expectations was made, we'd already got Gainsborough Pictures mm-hmm. on the way, making their series of... Uh, um, Films largely aimed at a female audience, with with people like James Mason as as, as sort of villainous characters, often with Margaret Lockwood in them, you know, and and um, uh, you've got stuff like the Wicked Lady, the Man in Grey, that sort of movie. Um, they were sisters, Fanny by Gaslight, A Place of One's Own, things like that, and then um, Mason going on to do stuff like The Seventh Veil, you know, and I think a lot of that is being made just before or just after these these lean films and I think they all sort of play into each other you know the, again it's this gothic look without them necessarily being gothic horror movies in the way that America was making with with Frankenstein and Dracula I think the British gothic sensibility was was picked more at that sort of wicked squire sort of level you know females under threat sort of thing the the whole gaslighting thing as well, well Gas, think... gaslight was a big big theme in British films at that time. Yeah, well, I think I think it was gothic romance. I think you know, yeah, it's that yeah. it's that kind of she wuthering heights. It's those kind of ones where it's not horror, as particularly in the Americans. Obviously, took it as took gothic meaning, and, and gothic has become has those horror overtones yeah, now. Yeah. But I think at the time, if I guess if you said gothic to to someone in the street, they wouldn't necessarily immediately think horror. Yeah, They'll think yeah. the Moors and Cathy and, yeah, and, yeah. and those sweeping vistas, you know. And interestingly, even British horror films of the 1940s tended to still play on that same template. You know, they offer, Dead of Night aside, which is, which is the sort of big one, I think if you look at the smaller British horror movies of, of, of the 1940s, things like... Um, Candles at Nine, Three Weird Sisters, House of Darkness, even Queen of Spades, the, the Torrell Dickinson mm. movie, they're, they're based much more in reality. They're, they're, they're much more on, on that sort of gothic romance sort of template, you know. And again, a lot of them uh, took their tip from Great Expectations rather than from Dead of Night. You know, they sort of eschew the supernatural mm. and they go for that David Lean sort of look. Well, the David Lean, I mean... Uh... As much, I mean, obviously, they are beautifully staged, these films. But he, they really come to life with the outdoor stuff, I think. Whether it's staged outdoor or whether it's actually outdoor, it's almost regardless. He definitely likes a sweeping vista. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, I, foreshadowing I, 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 his future. I love in this film, the, 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 we've talked about the set design already, but, um, yeah, you, you've hit on it there, Adam. I think he... 
he, he, he stages scenes out of doors, but they're often filmed on a set. Mm. You know, he's, 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 his, his set designers are, are, are masterly at, at doing these sort of uh, interior exteriors, you know, and I think they really give the film a sort of unique look. And again, it harks back to that German expressionism. It's what happens in Caligari, mm. you know, the outdoor sets, the street scenes are all filmed in the studio. You know, they're all filmed against painted flats and painted backdrops. Yeah, it does create a, a very specific, unique look uh, that kind of goes away once on uh, on location filming becomes a big, big thing in cinema. That kind of look goes away in many respects, which is a shame because it has got its uniqueness. What did you think of the looks of these films, Becky? Um, for great expectations, I agree the uh, with the gothic feel, um, and particularly um, of uh, Miss Havisham's house. Um, and they really reflect how you imagine when you read about Miss Havisham and, and the idea of the cobwebs and the you know everything shut up, and you really you really get that feel when you, when you um, when you look at it, mm. yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, we can tell we're dealing with different class structures when a woman can just lock herself away for years and not have to worry about it. You know, it's like, we're not dealing with working class people here now. Get out and work, woman. You know, there's none of that. It's like, oh, no, we, she can afford to just while away her years uh, playing the uh, Machiavellian games yeah. with her charges. Yeah, what, what do we think about Miss Havisham as a character and the, and the way she's represented in, in this film? Because I've already referred to her as a sort of vampiric character, but I think there is there is a very nice and kindly side to her character as well. So you do get that, uh, um, you know, the, the the two sides of the coin there. I think. Yeah, I don't think she's the out and out villain that she could have been portrayed as, but I think I don't. It's kind of a tricky one because, as we discussed earlier, as Becky was saying, because she just goes out of the film for such a long <laughs> period, you kind of forget that she's part of this in, in many ways yeah it's and, a bit it's a bit like that thing in hound of the baskervilles where sherlock yeah. holmes disappears for for an hour you know and then you're thinking well I'm, I've, I've paid to see a sherlock holmes film here you know what's going on you know? and and yeah if 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 you sort of if, if if you've sort of turned on bbc2 in the afternoon on boxing day to watch this to see Miss Havisham, you know, and, and yeah, you, you you might find yourself thinking, well, you know, there's not as much of her as I remembered, you know, and I think that's that's down to largely down to Martita Hunt as as the character making such an impact. Mm. I think you you if you've not seen Great Expectations for a while, your 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 memory of it is that she dominates the film, and I think I think in terms of screen time she doesn't but I think in terms of influence she's all over it yeah, yeah. I think the character does, is the same in the books as well yeah, you know, I think yeah. the character dominates your thought that's the character that leaps off the page and how difficult must that have been to sort of translate mm. to film then the, this, to have this lingering idea of this character even when she's not on screen yeah, I mean, it's. It, yeah. I, I don't think it's entirely successful, but I don't think it's necessarily the film's fault. I think it's probably, as we've discussed, it feels that like source material is not really designed to be adapted for a film in the way it's done. No, no. And again, yeah. Ham, Hammer did it with Dracula. Again. Mm. Christopher Lee's hardly on screen. He, he gets a few minutes of screen time, but you, when you think about Dracula, you think, oh, yeah, Christopher Lee yeah. dominates that mm. film. And... and uh, and it's all about that presence. And if you can get an actor and and a character 
sort of married in that way, meshed together in that way, I think that's, that's an achievement, you know, because film's all about image. It's all about pointing a camera at something and filming it and then presenting that to an audience. And if, if, if you can manage to, to not do that and still make an impact, that's, that's really great filmmaking, I think. Yeah, yeah. And again, another thing that struck me was just how young Alec Guinness looks in this movie. <laughs> It's like you know, in my head, he's always he always he's always older, either either actually older, you know, as in like in the Star Wars movies, or playing older with makeup, mm. as in um, like the lady um, lady killers and things like that, where he's aged up, or I, I indeed Oliver Twist. So seeing him as a young man in this was just really strange for me. <laughs> yeah, and I was saying earlier to Adam about Gene Simmons as uh, Estella. For some reason, I remember her being the older Estella, and I, it's it's funny to see her so young and knowing how she looks when she's older. I always think of her when she's older. So yeah, the, the same as with Alec Guinness. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's. Let, we, we've talked about great expectations. Arguably, the greatest Dickies adaptation, uh, critically. Um, let's move on to Oliver Twist, um, which isn't without its problems. I think even today, definitely. But even back then, it had its problems. And Oliver Twist is Dickens' second novel, and it's also like it's the eighth adaptation. This. So it's been through the mill, this film. And it's like, it's only the second sound one, but it was like done time and time again in the first 40, 50 years of cinema. What, what does David Lean think he can bring to the source material in 1948 that hadn't been brought to the material before? I, I, I think he... This, it's almost a sequel to, to Great Expectations, in a sense, or, or a, a companion piece to it, certainly. He's doing the same thing. He's, he's, doing, he's bringing that gothic sensibility to it again. And I, I, think, I think you can judge that from the opening sequence. I'd, I'd say mm. Great Expectations opening sequence is the best in any British movie. And the opening sequence of Oliver Twist is, is in the top five, I think. It's brilliant. You know, you've got, again, you've got, you've got um, peeling thunder, you've got shadows dominating the screen, um, very much in the Great Expectations world. And rain lashing down, uh, the sort of swinging lanterns, and there's this young woman sort of racing, bus, battling her way through it all. And e- even when she finds a haven... It's the parish workhouse, you know. So, so she's sort of trapped immediately. Mm. It's, it's like, oh, you thought you were finding a place of safety. You're not, you know. And, and then we find out why she's, she's sort of making her way there and what her story is. And it, it's immediately, yeah, we're, we're in this glum, gloomy sort of world all over again. You, you, you thought Great Expectations was, was depressing, you know. Uh, we're back again with more of the same guys, you know. And, uh, and so I, I think Lean's mind is very much set on making this sort of companion piece to the earlier film. And again, it is a fairly sort of like, whilst there have been quite a lot of silent adaptations of it, it's only the second sound one. And again, the first one with any kind of budget and, and cast. So as a prestige picture it goes, it's one of the first... You know this and, and and great expectations. This is the first Oliver Twist that would have been played in multiple cinemas across the country and across the world, and it does nail the beats. It, it's fairly faithful adaptation. Yeah, uh, well, I, of, I think again, it's when when people think of Oliver Twist, 
they're not thinking so much of the Dickens novel as they're thinking about this film. And I think this has very much set the template for, for the subsequent remake. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think Oliver the Musical takes a lot from this yeah. rather than, than necessarily the and source a lot, material. A lot of reviews pointed that out. Right, OK. The and, and, then, yeah. and then definitely, and I think the Oliver Musical is the one that people think of now, yeah. arguably. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's yeah. many people going back to the original Oliver Twist for, for many different reasons, potentially because the character of Fagin is such an important part in this, yeah. film, yeah. In this book. I, I, I that think, I think the, this, the way this... that Fagin and the way that Oliver Twist are presented in, in Lean's film have, have become sort of templates. Well, well, that... Although Fagin, the, the look of Fagin here is, again, as we've already said, based very heavily on, on, on the Crookshank. Uh, yeah. illustration. Well, that's what I was about to say. I, yeah. I, I think with, with, with I think where he gets it wrong is with Fagin. Mm. And Fagin's such a key part of Oliver Twist that I think it's a failing of the movie when you get that character wrong. And I think Oliver the Musical, even though it took changes to the novel and the source material, I think we, we get a, a more, I want to say true, true representation of what Fagin is, but I think at least a more audience-friendly version of what Fagin is and I think that's what audiences want and I think that's what audiences have become to expect from Dickens now yeah, yeah. and the Fagin character well let's, let, let's address this because we've got yeah. Alec Guinness again and he's, he's, he's now in a, in a bigger role than he was even in Great Expectations <laughs> yeah. and a more central role playing Fagin so as, um, as I've just said it, it was a, such a strange thing seeing him playing seeing him so young yeah just yeah. a year before yeah they slap a load of makeup on him to make him look older yeah to play and, Fagin and he, he you know whatever you think of the character and the portrayal it's a, it's a great it's a great performance it's a magnetic performance you know but you know let's address the, the controversies of it well the controversies obviously nowadays it, it would you would never ever ever get that made with the, with the obvious obvious Jewish stereotypical um, look to the character that they did through makeup design, you would not get away with that now. You didn't get away with it then. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. to say. I mean, this is 1948, yeah. which is quite an important year in the, for, for the Jewish people. It is you know? kind yeah. of shocking that they actually did it. To be perfectly honest with you, we're in we're in post war. We've just had a world war unlike anything has been seen in the history of, of the world. The Jewish people have been persecuted, incarcerated and murdered in their millions. And then four years later, David Lean makes this film. And I don't care what his arguments are. That's, they're, they're flimsy arguments. At that point, they just are. There's no, there's yeah. no way you don't and, know. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily even a 21st century perspective. I think it was probably mm. seen like that at the time. It absolutely I, was. I, as I say, you know, you, you, you've had the sort of horrors of, 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 of World War Two, and and then the the, the, the setting up of, of you know states in the Middle East and so on. It's the most important time. Of the twentieth century for, for for the Jewish population, mm-hmm. the Jewish community, you know, and, and in the middle of it, here's this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I say, I don't know how I don't know how they got away with it. I really don't. The arguments that they made about depicting Fagin like they did in the Crookshank drawings was that he was depicted like that in the Crookshank drawings, which is in itself a flimsy argument. And then they were saying, well, we took away some of the makeup. And Alec Guinness didn't look... It just didn't work. Alec Guinness looked weird, so we put the makeup back on. It's like, well, if Alec Guinness looks weird without the makeup on, cast a different actor. 
You know, it's like it's all within your power to do that. And he didn't do that. And all you can do is take that as a sign that he wanted to depict the stereotype of, of a miserly Jewish pickpocket on screen in 1948. And I don't know how that can be spun to be in any way acceptable. Yeah. And let's compare Guinness to uh, Ron Moody playing mm. the part in, in the 1968 film. Is, is Moody more acceptable, do you think? Or are you, are you going to make the same argument about him? I think the performance is fine. I think it's more... It's more I mean, for a start, Ron Moody is Jewish. Yeah, yeah. So he was the first Jewish actor to play the role. Um, David, one of David Lean's arguments that he that, that it never said it never explicitly states in the screenplay that Fagan is Jewish, which <laughs> it just feels like the, the, the most ridiculous argument. Yeah, what are you are you saying? This character, the way he's depicted in Oliver Twist, nineteen forty eight, isn't Jewish? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was. Leaning heavily on on, on negative stereotypes. That's, that's that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, but I think with the Ron Moody one, they they humanise the character more, mm. which is what I was saying about making that character more audience friendly and more in line of what audiences wanted from that. And, and I, I think the the very fact that you've turned Oliver Twist into a musical does that with the whole story sure. anyway. You know, it sort of it pairs and tones down the whole thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because what we've got here basically is, is a story about what you were talking about earlier. It's about grimy, grim, underclass mm. London. You know, it's about the, the absolute have-nots and people who are having to beg and steal and so on just just to survive and live. And you turn that into a big uh, West End musical, you know, and it's it, it's it's going to be played... You know, we, we all know and can sing along with the sort of jolly songs from that, you know, and uh, it's... Uh, it's it's bringing it up quite a few notches, you know. It's uh, mm. it's set in the gutter, but it is reaching for the stars, you know. And Lean's film and the original book are, are certainly not doing that. Well, I think, I think the original book's an interesting one because um, during the writing of the book, Dickens' attitudes towards Jewish people was changing. So he, as he was writing the book through the, the serialisation... It starts off and it's very heavy on the negative Jewish stereotypes. But as the book goes along and the months pass, as he's, he's knowing more Jewish people and he's, he's learning and growing as a person, just from the course of the... Towards the end, the last ten or five, five or ten chapters and, and serialised bits, there's, there's hardly any references to those negative Jewish stereotypes for the Fagin character. So even Dickens, as he was writing it, was changing and growing and understanding that the negative impact that that depiction was having, and then then and then and then Lean just goes back to the to the the, the original drawing, which yeah. is I, I I suppose one one um, indication of that is is the the Bill Sykes character mm. who who. If if you think Fagan's bad, you know he's not the villain of the piece. You know there's there's this other guy who's who's the the, the real monstrous villain. You know, and at least Fagan's sort of quite friendly and 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 um, uh, all, all he's almost got a, a, a love of, of sort for for his charges. You know, and he, he he's sort of training them to to steal and pick pockets and so on. Sykes is is just a monster. He obviously hates them and and and. Um, 
and seems to sort of despise everything, you know, and he's, he's just this horrible sort of brute of a man, which you, you and that, that, that in its own way sort of tones down um, the, the Fagin character a mm. little, but, uh, you know, that, that doesn't make the portrayal of Fagin any, any more acceptable, you know. Yeah. Becky, you were talking about this sort of at the start of the, the, the podcast today, so... Uh, that there were issues with with this character so let's hear your your sort of take on it yeah exactly um and that was the main reason why i disliked it i didn't realize the year it was made i had to check which year it was and i you know i was surprised that the 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 portrayal and yeah um was yeah yeah well it was just so incorrect um and i just couldn't it was weird when i started watching the film because i just couldn't i just know the the, um carol reef version so well you know it's always on the tv and i grew up with it that i can't sort of imagine anybody else playing the characters than in that film um so i think a little bit to that as well made me just dislike the film but yeah, and definitely it's one of um, Dickens' darkest um, novels. And I think the Bill Sykes character, it, I've, all, I've always got the impression he's the real villain of it all. Obviously, you've got domestic violence and abuse. Um, and, you know, um, I think that everybody everybody was a victim in that that uh, that apart from bill sykes really when it, it, you, it is interesting about the music yeah. thing like you know, the music yeah because it is unrelentingly grim <laughs> you know you just, <laughs> yeah. that poor kid goes from one horrible situation to another <laughs> like, yeah. one after the other yeah. you just can't get a break until the very end when he gets a break but it's just like yeah, watching it without the music and without the musical moments it's like oh god this is horrible. Yeah, it's almost like you you know, you you, you could have a sort of cut of, of, of the Carol Reed film that, that took all the songs out and, and it'd be a completely different experience, mm. you know. If 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 you focus, as Lean does, on the degradation and on, on not not just the degradation of of the, the 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 world that these characters live in, but of their minds and of their psyches as well, you know. And I think he 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 manages to sort of convey that successfully in a way that the musical sort of dissipates simply by the fact that it is a musical, mm. you know. Yeah, I I I, I think he, he he really gets that right, and uh, it'd be interesting to see a version of the Carol Reed film with with all the songs taken out, you know. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, we, the misery we, version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 covered, we covered Robert Altman on on a recent podcast, and um, I, I love Altman's film Popeye, and I, I really like the songs in Popeye, which are which are often criticised for being very sort of downbeat and and dull and dull and very depressing. And I think that's the point in in Popeye. I think that's the, these characters are downtrodden, and I almost want an Oliver musical to be like. That. Popeye gives me what what I would like an Oliver musical to be, uh, but you're not going to sell any tickets. To I me. was about to say one was a yeah. massive yeah. smash hit version that's <laughs> loved throughout the world. The other one bombed and disappeared yeah. without a if, trace. If, if you ain't got, you've got to pick a pocket or yeah, two yeah, or consider yeah. yourself. You ain't going to sell ticket one, are you? No, no, not at all. Yeah, I must admit, I, I, I found it a little bit too, a little bit too miserable. 
for me uh, watching it and, and then uh, obviously the I fame. think David Lean would take that as a compliment I possibly. think that's the film he set out to make possibly yeah I mean uh, for me I didn't enjoy it as much as Great Expectations and I think some of that was the depiction of Fagin where it was just so so caricature and so o- o- over the top in those in those negative stereotypes it kind of threw me out of the movie a lot um it does. It does dominate the film in in the way that Miss Havisham dominates mm. um, Great Expectations, but not in not in as as anywhere near as positive a way. I yeah, think. and I think this movie is not quite as well. Um, wasn't quite as well respected as Great Expectations upon release. Expectations got Oscar nominations and things like that. Oliver, this, Oliver Twist didn't. Yeah, yeah. It had a very o- o- tricky... Oliver, Oliver Twist's only, like, 75th in the BFI's top 100 or something. 46. You know, rather than 5th. It's you know, 46, you know. yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I, I reckon that if you did that now, I'd be surprised if it was in there. Yeah, it'd, it'd be a film, I think, that would, with, with modern sensibilities... And as I say, that's, that's, not, that's not a change, I don't think. I think the film at mm. the time was seen as Well, just looking some of the, but, some but of the I facts. Think with, with modern sensibilities, you do a poll like that now and that's going to that's gonna drop off the radar. Uh, yeah, and, and I think just trying to put that to one side and watch the film is really hard. And yeah. I think maybe... Which, which is a shame because it's a great, great film. Yeah, um, I, think, know, I think it yeah, looks yeah. beautiful. I mean, but it had a very tricky road. People didn't see it. It was released in 1949. It got a release in Germany and was protested against. It was banned in Israel. Ironically, it was banned in Egypt <laughs> for showing uh, uh, for showing unduly sympathetic Jewish characters. Really, the exact <laughs> opposite of the reason why it was banned in Israel. Yeah, so I, I, I can sort of see that because I think the way Alec Guinness plays Fagin is is you know despite the sort of stereotypes and so on. I think he's, he's he, as, I, as I said earlier, he's very kindly to these, these mm. kids who've been put in his charge. And, um, you know, whatever, whatever other sort of uh, um, things emerge from this portrayal, I, I, I think I, I can see that Egyptian point of view there. Yeah. yeah. Why is he being friendly to these kids? Why is he helping them? He's, he's almost like a father to them. You yeah. Know? Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not showing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I guess most importantly, where it counts, in America, it didn't get a release until 1951. Mm. And even then it was cut by 12 minutes. Yeah, and I, I, I can imagine which 12 yeah. minutes. And I think a lot of that, I mean, Americans didn't get to see the full version until the 1970s. So it's had, and by that point, the definitive Oliver Twist had been released with with Ron Moody playing Fagin. So so it's like, what's this dull black and white version of of Oliver? We've got, we've got the, we've got the one, the nice sing-along one, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's had a tricky road. Yeah. Again, to, to talk about real positives in the film and I, and I, I think it, the, the positives of it are that it is a companion piece to Great Expectations and again that's reflected in, in the cabinet of Dr Caligari mm. look to it I think both films depict London in a very interesting way and Great Expectations is almost like a little trial run for Oliver Twist in that you, you get a handful of scenes set in London, again largely on interior sets mm-hmm. and um, and uh, so you've got that sort of expressionist sort of look to it, and then Lean does the entire movie like that with 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 Oliver Twist, and he does a very very interesting thing in terms of this 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 business of interior exteriors. Um, when in the, the scenes of the pickpockets going out into London, 
going into affluent areas to steal from sort of the well-to-do and business people and so on seemed to be shot on genuine exteriors and genuine locations. And then the, the London set scenes that are set in their world, their sort of subterranean world, are shot on expressionist-type sets. So you get this visual difference mm. there. You know, the, the sun is out, it's bright, there's, there's clean air, there's gents in top hats and so on, there's coaches and horses driving past... This is this is the, the 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 very affluent, very real world, you know, um, and this is where the kids emerge from, like like rats, to sort of steal, and then they scurry back into Caligari land, mm. you know. It's it's I, th- I think that's tremendously successful as as a visual. Yeah, no, I I agree. It definitely evokes those two worlds that, are, uh, and also evokes that class structure as well, which is a big part of the social aspect of, 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 of social commentary of Dickens' books. He's obviously creating those two worlds and yeah. showing yeah. the stark differences between. Again, them. there's a, there's a brilliant uh, monkey and uh, um, sort of uh, skyline, and even even a, a, a scream like road in the scene where Oliver. <laughs> Decides to run away from from the funeral parlour where where he's he's living and make his way to London and the road that he runs up is is basically the one out of the screen. Mm. Yeah, I personally hated the film. I'd be happy not to watch it again. Did you, did you not find that the way it was filmed interesting or anything like that, Becky? Or was it just it was just too too hard to I get think, on board? Yeah, it was just too hard to get on board. I just I don't know if it's because. Uh, Carol Reed versions, you know, had such a it, it, yeah. Is how I see Oliver. I just yeah. I just, well, there was there yeah. was a lot of similarities in that respect, particularly in costume. Yeah, you look yeah. at the costume, the yeah. way that the, the artful Dodger is. They basically just put it in color mm. on, on on for, for the for the Carol yeah. Reed version. You know, there's this yeah. Put a color filter on that, and it would have been exactly the same. <laughs> you know, there was and Oliver. The, the kid Oliver yeah. looks so much yeah. like the kid Oliver. Oh, he does, 20, which is what I was saying later. earlier. That I, I, I think when people think of Oliver Twist now, you, you, and, and the, I think the reason Mark Lester and subsequent actors have been cast in that part is that they look like John Howard Davis in this film. Yeah. I think David Lean sort of. I mean, I, 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 I can't recall whether Oliver's depicted. I'm sure he, he, he must be in in the novel. Um, were, were there illustrations of him, and, and and what did he look like in those? I'm sure. I'm sure there will have been illustrations. Yeah, okay. yeah. It'd be hard I, not to have I, a book called Oliver Twist and not have the, yeah, Oliver. Yeah, because obviously they 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 copied the the drawings of Fagan. Yeah. I, I don't know the the. I can't recall the the precise look of Oliver in the 19th century illustrations. But I, I think the, the, the casting of John Howard Davis here is something that every other filmmaker since has, has, has sort of taken on board. And, and uh, also, I think, you, you're, you're seeing here with, with characterizations like Anthony Newley playing, playing the Artful Dodger and one or two of the other characters as well. I think there are even characters earlier in the film um, even before Oliver gets involved with the Urchins and Fagan and Bill Sykes, I think earlier on in the film, um, you've got Diana Dawes appears, for instance, mm-hmm. and, and, and you've got other characters in, in the sort of the, the downstairs part of the sort of upstairs, downstairs, um, you know, dwelling that Oliver finds himself in. 
um, the sort of servants' quarters, and then with Newley as Fagan as well. What what you're seeing there is almost the birth of a, a new type of British acting, which I think then extends through to the 80s, and people like Gary Oldman and Tim Roth coming through, and Phil Daniels and Phil Davis and people like that. I, th- I think that that breed of, of British actor is is born in this film you know mm. the, the the fact oh right we we've got we've got these young kids sort of you know 17 18 playing these urchin type characters and they're doing they're doing they're basically talking in their own voices they're doing sort of cockney accents because they are cockneys mm. you know and and uh, and I, I i i can imagine a young tim roth or somebody watching this film and taking that from this and thinking oh yeah i can, I can do that you know mm. i think i think lean does something interesting with the story and that he brings oliver into the into the film a bit more because in the book he kind of like disappears in the, at the end when they're doing the whole Bill Sykes, Nancy Fagan Yeah, which story. is what I was saying earlier about purists. You yeah. Know, I, I think this film got, a, a, aside from all the other flack that it's got here and there, you know, I, th- I think Charles Dickens' purists like the, the, the depiction of Fagan in the film because it's real and authentic, you know, in terms of, yeah. of the illustration. What they don't like is the ending because it changes the ending of the Well, it the does, but, you, but, you, but in the book, your central character goes missing yeah, yeah. for the, I, for the think, finale think, of the I book. Think, I think this is a better ending. I, I, I completely right agree, and obviously yeah, yeah. Oliver, the musical, did as well because they yeah. did the same thing. They brought him back into the, in, into the centre of the action towards the end of the film. Mm. Um, and I think that works really well. And that's an interesting... Div- if you're going to tinker with stuff uh, when you're adapting it, that that's a really positive... To the point where now people will see that story as that's how it happened. Um, he's a bit of a wet fish, though, isn't he, Oliver? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... He's a bit like... God's sake, kid! You know, doesn't the character need to be like possibly? That? But I think it's a fine line like between that. being being the wide-eyed innocent and being insipid. Insipid, yeah. 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 And I think they just about get it right in these, in this one, <laughs> and in the in the Matt Lester playing you in in, the, in Oliver. But it, it, it's a knife edge, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I want to mention in terms of both films, uh, we, we've talked about influences and, and not to do Lean Down because I think both of these films have been massively influential in the ways that we've, we've discussed, but they've also taken their influences. And one we've not mentioned so far, which I think is really, really prominent in both, is uh, Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. I think the look of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane and the, 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 the developments that that brought to cinema... And, and the the experimentation that brought to cinema. David Lean had got his notebook out, I think, watching that movie, and I think it shows here. Yeah, you can see some of the, the a lot in the transitions between scenes. They're, they're they're very much like you know voiceovers or on screen dialogue. Or I think there's a lot of interesting ways of transitioning between scenes, which I think you feel he took from 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 things like Citizen Kane. Yeah, but I I, I think it, to to Lean's credit, one thing he takes from Kane is is he, he, I think he does steal things directly from Citizen Kane. But the other thing he took, he took from Citizen Kane was inspiration. Mm-hmm. The, the chance he, I think he watched that film and thought, "Hey, you know, you, you can you can go crazy with cinema now. You can experiment. You can go wild." Mm. There's there's a shot towards the end of Great Expectations, which I, I wanted to mention earlier on, where um, uh, after John Mills. Um, has spoken to the dying Magwitch and found out his relationship to him and so on. In a complete daze, 
and he heads back to the rooms that he shares with the, the Alec Guinness character uh, pocket, isn't mm-hmm. it? There's this sort of whirring and buzzing sound on the soundtrack, and then something like a fan appears in, in superimposed over the shot. And you just get this incredible sort of jerky point of view shot as he sort of heads back into his digs. And you, you could put that in an experimental movie today. You could take that single shot and, and present it as part of a sort of experimental film programme in 2021. Mm. And, and it would not be out of place. You know, it's an overused word in modern cinema analysis and criticism, but uh, it's Lynchian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously creating that sort of like mindset as, yeah. as a film technique. Yeah, you know? and it's it's so striking and surprising to see him in what is otherwise a fairly conventional nineteen forties film. You know, suddenly there's this thirty seconds of wild experimentation, and again, you know, that's that's in there because Citizen Kane exists. So, do you think does does lean in the in the rest of his career? Does he build on that? Because I mean, I've seen the epics. And with all due respect, I don't really want to see them again. I, th- I think he's done by this point. I think he's done with Dickens. He's sort of done the two novels. Um, no, I meant, I meant the experimentation in film, in film techniques. Yes. Well, I, 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 think, I, I think the two go together. I think he sees these as his chance to experiment and his chance to sort of build on what Orson Welles has, mm. has given to cinema. I think his other films, he's, he's off onto another area by then and he's got mm. his eye on, already I think by the 50s, he's got his eye on sort of doing doing the epics. Yeah. And again, we, we covered uh, Summertime on, on a recent podcast, mm. which is experimentational in in its own way, I think, but very, very different to, to these films. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think the outdoor shooting... Started to come into yeah, him, and, and colour, colour, of colour, course, of course, vitally. Yeah. I think, which he'd already used on uh, *Blithe Spirit* by this time, mm. but uh, um, but I think colour became much more part of his his sort of template. And uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think these these films were very very important to him in terms of wanting to try things out to advance cinema and advance his own his own sort of style of cinema. Cool. I don't think he ever intended to build on that. I, I, I get the impression it was just, let's do this now. Yeah. And then I can do something else and then something else. And then in time, I can do what I really want to do, which is make films that are four and a half hours long, you know. That Adam will watch once and never again. <laughs> uh. <laughs> So yeah, so that's Dave. That's David Lean's brace of Dickens adaptations. Thank you for joining us, Becky and Daryl. We'll see you again next time. Take care.